0: We tend to condition ourselves to conform with unspoken expectations, and so that does tend to put us in the boxes, and I think if you're truly open and curious, that you don't feel those boxes.
1: You're listening to WERALP, Arlington, Virginia, 96.7 FM, streaming and on demand at WERA.FM. I'm your host, Lynn Borton, and this is Choose to be Curious. Welcome. You know what Stephen Hawking's first Facebook post ever was? He wrote, Be curious, I know I will forever be. And he prefaced that when I've always wondered what makes the universe exist. Time and space may forever be a mystery, but that has not stopped my pursuit. Lucky for us, he's not alone in that. It's opening night of the new season at Arlington's own David M. Brown Planetarium on Quincy Street and there's a pretty good crowd. I'm tilted back in the dark, watching stars appear overhead. The constellations whirl above me, and I feel like I'm flying through the galaxy. That's Mars. Daddy, look, that brown dot in the sky Mars. I sit in the dark, looking up at the stars, and I think, science rocks. Scientists rock. And I wanted to explore the idea of curiosity and research, curiosity for its own sake, what it means to be a true scientist. I wanted to dig into Einstein's wonderful line, the important thing is not to stop questioning. Curiosity has its own reason for existing. And who better to help me think about the value of basic research and exploring frontiers Then the director of the Division of Polar Research at the National Science Foundation, Kelly Faulkner. Kelly was good enough to take me up on my request, so welcome, Kelly. Thank you, Lynn. I'm glad to be here. It's really a pleasure. So I want to ask you, how would you describe what it means to be a scientist? You described it pretty well when you said people are driven by
0: curiosity. Mm -hmm. I think it's the kind of person who takes the curiosity they had as a child and retains it through their whole life and applies that in their their livelihood, obviously, in science.
1: One of the things about scientists seems to me is that it's both that combination of this pursuit of novelty with this desire to kind of make order of things that, I don't know, is that qualitatively different than the rest of us, do you think? Are scientists different than the rest of us?
0: You know, more and more as I've listened to your series of Curiosity shows, I've been feeling like it isn't. Uh, you su- You surprise me actually with these interviews you've done because I realize scientists don't really have the lock on curiosity. Ah. Um, I do think we have, you know, it at the heart of everything that we do, but um, the, the best scientists combine things their their questions, their curiosity, with creativity uh-huh. and how to answer them. And uh, the best scientists also know what kind of questions really are important to ask. They, They develop a sixth sense, if you will, based on all the knowledge that they garner
1: to figure out what the next important question is. So talk a little bit more about the creativity in that, because I think that's often invisible to people outside the scientific process. What does that look like to someone on the inside of it? You, you tend to think
0: of science and logic together. I think mm. that's most people's perception, you know, that we must have a tried-and-true way to march towards any scientific result. But it really isn't like that. We're all explorers in some way, and uh, we draw inspiration from crazy moments in the shower, just like other, <laughs> other people do. Um, I think that the most creative scientists talk about getting their aha moments in odd places in sort of inspired ways that you can't attribute to a, a a direct logical method. That said, of course, we apply methodology to what we do. We have things we you know we can try and so forth. But doing those things and, and recognizing when you're finding out something new, I think, is an important part of the creativity of science. Interesting.
1: And it sounds like it's also... A lot about its structure, but it's also making room for serendipity.
0: Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's an interesting word because you never know what the next great discovery is going to be. For me, that's the exciting thing about science. It's also one of the hardest things as a funder and manager of science to argue to the general public. That you should continue to support it because you don't know what the next great discovery might be. Right.
1: I mean, you can't make the argument yet for what what its translational value is. And it's like I can't I can't guarantee this is going to lead to X or Y or this cure or that cure. But surely these things accumulate and do contribute. Is that the argument for? Let's see. exploratory research, or? Well, that's the argument we make
0: for the basic research that we mm-hmm. support at the National Science Foundation, that um, we've had great discoveries. We say to people, have you ever used an iPhone? Wouldn't be here without the basic research we've we funded, and there are many other things like that. So there are a lot of practical outcomes from the science that we support, the basic research. You know, then there's also applied science, and it's really a continuum. Mm-hmm. And I personally think they
1: both require creativity. Mhm. When we were talking in preparation for this conversation, you you said you described yourself as not now a practicing scientist, but somebody whose job is really to galvanize interest and caring about science and scientific research or scientific curiosity. What is what shape does that take? What do you actually do to do that? So I lead up a group of folks at the National Science
0: Foundation, uh, as you noted, that handles polar research. But it's pretty generic across the foundation for division directors. You oversee a group of people who have programs with um, specific uh, purviews. So, for for example, I might have uh, I do have a program um, on Antarctic ecosystems and organisms. Hmm. Uh, another program on Antarctic astrophysics, a program on Arctic social science and so forth, and there are individuals who lead these. People from across the nation, from our educational and research institutions, submit proposals. These people in the group that I lead receive them, bring them through a process where they are vetted by peers, by people who know something about the subject matter, and then come up with a recommendation on what should be funded given available resources. That whole process is what I oversee right now. We have to think about the breadth of what we're supporting. We have to think about uh, making sure that we have geographic and diversity of, of uh, participants in the program mm-hmm. and, and all that kind of thing. So it, it's a broad responsibility to, to look after the health
1: of science. So what's hot? In the health of science right now.
0: Oh, it's an exciting time. Yeah, yeah. It's, tell it, me. It's it's um, it very exciting in the in the endeavor you uh, opened up with in in astrophysics. I think we had the first detection of gravitational waves, mm-hmm. right? And if you've heard about the LIGO discovery, that had been hypothesized, and of course we spent. Many, many millions of dollars building the facilities, but it was terribly exciting for them to actually materialize.
1: Right, that was kind of amazing. Everybody sort of, sort of thought this stuff was out there, but couldn't figure out how to, how to be able to show
0: it. Right, and we made those announcements, and then you know, and uh, just a little uh, over half a year later, we had another set of um, waves detected. So it's robust. That's exciting. It's bringing us to a new. Uh, error that we're calling, you know, windows on the universe. Now we can look at the very essence of nature. What is the, the origin and nature of our universe in so many different ways. We can look at gravity waves. We can, can look at light, electromagnetic spectra, and so forth. So we want to, and, and particles, things like neutrinos. So we're putting all of those perspectives together, and that's
1: exciting time.
0: I don't know what we're going to find.
1: So what's it at risk if we don't? Do those things.
0: I tend to like to think about how far we've come based on what we've done as a roadmap to the future. Mm -hmm. So I like to use the example of um, Marie Curie. And she was walking around with a little vial of stuff she extracted from rocks in her pocket, right? Right. And um, of course, she had a little damage from that, too. Yes, she did. (laughs) But who would have thought, and she was driven by curiosity, right? There was no obvious application of what she was doing. But she obviously stumbled on a part of nature that's extremely important to us now. And radioactivity and all that ensues from it is a pretty amazing discovery. So I think you can think of it as an analogy. We're Mm -hmm. kind of there and trying to discover even further the essence
1: of what our world is. And we really don't know what's coming. And so if we don't do it, then we really, we don't know. I mean, we don't know what's coming and sort of all of that thinking and work stops. So I'm glad you mentioned Marie Curie, actually, because as I was preparing for this conversation and kind of reading up, you know, you listen to the show, I love to pull out quotes people have talked about. And with the exception of Marie Curie, women's wisdom in the scientific universe at least as I can find it in the popular culture, is is pretty underrepresented, I guess. And I'm I'm just curious your thoughts about that, um, both about women in the sciences, whether women show up differently in the sciences. Just talk to me a little bit about being a woman in in the scientific research world. Yeah, that's an interesting
0: question. Um, So I think there have been some outstanding women throughout history and science, but it's true that they've been um, mavericks, if you will. Mm And it's not been the norm. And I think um, I had to be a bit of a maverick to do what I do, be where I am now. I was an oceanographer at a time when it was pretty clear women weren't allowed to go to sea initially. Weren't allowed to go to sea. Were not allowed, right. Oh, wow. So what would you do? Um, well, they transitioned at, about uh-huh. the time I entered the field. So, you know, I was among the first to hmm. go on on chips and things. And it was also true in Antarctica when we set up our science programs
1: down there. when Women we were not allowed initially hmm. to be part of it. It wasn't just that they weren't there, but that they actively were excluded. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You sort of have to sit with that for a minute and kind of realize what the implications are of that. So how has that changed and evolved? I think, you know,
0: at least um, the possibilities have evolved. Mm -hmm. What hasn't evolved probably as quickly are the the true pragmatics of it for Mm -hmm. a lot of people and a sense, I think, for people that they truly belong and can really be part of something. I feel like uh, that's coming, but we're not really moving the needle as quickly as we should be on that.
1: Hmm. And are there differences in the way that women show up in science than men or not?
0: We study a lot of statistics about these things at NSF, Mm -hmm. and um, there are fields in which women are represented equally to their proportion in the population. These tend to be in the biologically driven fields. But there are other ones where it's really skewed mm. uh, towards very low participation of women. You know, engineering and computer sciences are good examples of that. The physical sciences tend to be depleted of
1: what the, the talent they should probably be uh, attracting. So you've actually described a part of your job as of nurturing an appreciation for science and, and research. And obviously in your role that, that probably takes on some political characteristics in terms of kind of making the case. But I'm thinking it's it's got political implications, it's got sort of popular implications, and it's got implications for kids, I mean, sort of the pipeline for those girls who become women in the sciences. How do you think about that?
0: I think about that quite a bit because I'm a little bit worried for science right now. We did go through an era in this country where Being a scientist was an esteemed thing to be, a respected thing, and I feel like we kind of are in a funny, almost anti-intellectual backlash era of some Mm -hmm. sort, and certainly science can be seen to be less than desirable by a certain uh, group of people anyway. And, and, And when I think about it, and I run across these people, they're perfectly intelligent people. They're not scientists. They do other things. And I run into them when I fly on planes or what have you. I think, what what are we doing that makes them feel this antipathy towards science? And I think part of it is that we don't create that sense of belonging. We tend to, in the way we've trained classically in science, we've tended to use what I call weeding out processes. You have to pass over bars in order to get to the next step. You have to pass hard tests in school. You have to have achieved at a certain level of the math without help, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So with all these bars in place, we we are knocking people out left and right. This is not to say that I think everybody should do science, but I do think everybody should appreciate it, and anybody who wants to should be encouraged to, to try and stay in it. So um, I've been thinking for a long time that as part of a f- after school, care programs and things, we really need a component that lets people feel like they belong. Mm. You know, So I, I have dubbed it my curiosity
1: core. <laughs> oh, I love it. I was just thinking I needed to deputize you, but you've already deputized curiosity. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, I just think it would be great. I mean, I think it would be good to be, bring people who are in the pipeline of um, education and science you know, teachers, what have you, to let kids explore, encourage them to, to ask questions, to be curious, to try things. Mm-hmm. And I've seen a few attempts you know, by various groups to try and put things like this in play, like get young girls together at an early age and let them try to, to program, for example, and l- let them be comfortable with making mistakes. Because apparently, you know, being perfect is one of the things we try and drill into uh, girls, but but let them have comfort with that messiness of, I'm going to try it, it might not work, I'm going to try something else. Um, so I have, like I said, often felt like a curiosity core is what we're missing right now to really have that broader appreciation of what wonderful things that just simply being
1: curious and learning
0: mm-hmm. can bring.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, sign me up. Let me know how it can be helpful because it's really, and I, you know, I wouldn't have described it quite that way. But it's that's sort of the point of this whole show is to get people to sort of recognize the places where they are curious and to maybe increase that number. And and I think, or you're mentioning of you know, failure is really important in this because I'm thinking about the the explosion recently at SpaceX. Mm-hmm. Oh, so it happens to be a place where my son is employed and he wasn't working on that particular project but of course that was a devastating loss but it was also such a you know they look at it and they're like there's a lot here that we can learn and and so it's a it's a loss in many respects but a tremendous opportunity as well and that's a mindset that not all of us hold is that a scientist mindset is that something different
0: that, that's a great mindset. It's a very optimistic one. Mm. I, I wish I could say that was generically a scientist one, but it isn't necessarily. There is also some level of browbeating in science. There's competition built into yeah. it, you know. So what I would prefer for the curiosity core is that, um, as I said, even if you don't end up pursuing it, you value it, Yeah, yeah. you know. The creation of new knowledge is what you understand.
1: And what does it mean to you to choose to be curious in a scientific setting? Does that go deeper even than the natural inclination of a scientist? Yeah, it may well. I think um, it would be good
0: for scientists to remind themselves explicitly now and again that, you know, there's not bad questions. Mm. And, and oftentimes, some of our best discoveries come from some quirky person who just doesn't conform, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> who just is going to think about that question no matter what
1: anybody else might think. And is there a is there a, a, a good example you can give us of something like that?
0: One great example, I think, is when people discovered plate tectonics on Earth. Up until that point, um, nobody had any notion that the the surface of the earth was moving and it was even considered heresy at, as it was initially proposed really
1: i had no idea yeah and, well i suppose that's not surprising but
0: right and people at the time just thought you know it was a static situation and 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 when people were proposing proposing that it was actually quite an active one where you had the plates meeting at the mid-ocean ridges and creating new materials and then moving outward and diving Underneath continental Mm -hmm. plates. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was just, you know, not accepted by the science community initially. And obviously, eventually, it was completely acceptable because evidence rolled in. But it took some kind of uh, out of the box
1: (laughs) Uh look at how things work to, to come up with that. So, what do you wish people would be curious about? Oh,
0: everything going on around them. Be interested in, you know, themselves. Interested in social interaction, interested in urban living, or everything really. I, I, I think it would be great if people were just open minded and interested in learning about all these things around them. We tend to condition ourselves early in life to conform with unspoken expectations, right? Mm. And so uh, that does tend to put us in little boxes. And I think if you're truly open and
1: curious that um, you don't feel those boxes. Right. or Or maybe you challenge those assumptions. You challenge that the box is real or that there's something worthwhile on the other side, maybe.
0: Or that, you know, you're worried that someone thinks what you might be wondering about might be stupid (laughs) Mm, uh and that's that's the kind of thing I think it would be nice to throw out the window be able to ask questions without that feeling like if I ask I'm going to indicate that I don't know
1: so how do we make curiosity a celebrated feature as opposed to a suspect one you know that that an expression of ignorance is a good thing instead of a bad thing that's a great question. That's
0: kind of why I love your your <laughs> <laughs> radio series here, because it's making me think more explicitly about it. But um, yeah, it's a tough one. It's a tough one to overcome all these social norms that we have. But I have learned so much listening to your show about other endeavors where curiosity contributes so positively, raising people's awareness mm-hmm. that
1: it's okay and in fact very desirable to be curious. I'm gonna have you do my next promotion for this show. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I warned you that there's always an analogy on this one. We've actually talked about analogies on the show. So there's a real big jar of wannabe analogies here. Reach in, take a slip of paper and you're gonna make an analogy to curiosity, anything you pull out there. And I'm gonna take one for myself and one for our audience. You want to go or you want me to go first? Go ahead. (laughs) Okay. All right. Let's see. Mine is hiccups. (laughs) Um, Curiosity is like hiccups because um, it can often strike at inconvenient times and completely take over your whole being. And at least for me... They won't go away until you explicitly address them. So curiosity is the same thing. It doesn't go away until you actually scratch the itch. So what have you got?
0: That makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I have roller skates. And I think... mm, analogy might not be quite right here, but... um, I do think roller skates connote an image of gliding in and around objects. Ah, yeah. And, you know, whipping past them. Um, But you have an awareness of them, obviously, or you would have not still be gliding. (laughs) (laughs) So um, roller skates would be a great way to uh, visualize moving through the space to be curious in. Ah. Oh, wonderful.
1: I like that. I like that a lot. Okay, audience, yours is love. How is curiosity like love? Um, Let us know, Facebook, Twitter, Gmail, hashtag analogy. Well, Kelly, thank you so much for this, for listening to all of the shows, and also for just the insights that you've brought today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, and thanks for having me. You're listening to WERALP, Arlington, Virginia, 96.7 FM, streaming and on demand at WERA.FM. If you joined us late, you can catch up with the show online. Stick around. Wendy Mann is up next with the story hour. And if you're in the mood for more science and the environment, you might want to tune in for Green and Sexy, Wednesday nights at 7, and Rethink Energy's quick segments, Mondays at 2.30 or Thursdays at 10.30 a.m. We've got plenty to keep your curiosity muscle going. Do you know something about curiosity? Is there a conversation you think we should be having? Let us know via Facebook, Choose to be Curious, Twitter, that's choose number two, letter B, Curious, or Gmail, Choose choosetobecurious at gmail.com. Special thanks to our guest, Kelly Faulkner, and the good folks at the David M. Brown Planetarium for being part of today's conversation I highly recommend visiting Arlington's Planetarium, shows weekly, as well as monthly Stars Tonight programs. Don't forget to send us your love analogy, hashtag analogy. And I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be exploring the role of curiosity in narrative medicine. It's a relatively new approach to medical care that builds on the power of narrative storytelling, of being curious about our own and others' stories to change the way medical care is given and received. It's a great companion conversation to our discussion about empathy with Brandon Charles some weeks ago, so don't miss it. And until then, choose to be curious. ¶¶